Hello and welcome to this Faber Poetry Podcast, the first in the series to mark Faber's 80th anniversary year. My name is George Miller, and throughout the year I'll be presenting in-depth interviews with a selection of Faber poets, both new and established. In the programmes, you'll be able to hear them discussing their work and also reading selections from it. My guest in this first podcast is a young Australian poet, Emma Jones, who has just published her first collection, The Striped Wild. Emma was born and raised in Sydney, where she studied for her first degree, before coming to Cambridge to do postgraduate work on poet Christina Rossetti. In 2005, Emma was awarded the prestigious Newcastle Poetry Prize, Australia's largest prize for a single poem. It was awarded for Zoos for the Dead, and it was with this poem that we began our conversation. It's a long, complex, multi-layered work, so I was interested to hear how it had taken shape in Emma's imagination. I think it was a poem that, you know, a lot of the elements had been brewing for a while in my mind because of certain preoccupations I had with history and my own place within that history. But it had a definite trigger in the sense that I read an article in a newspaper, it was a book review on a, and I forget the name of the book, it was about dead languages and lost languages and how many approximately there were. And in this book, there was an anecdote about a brother and sister in Australia who were Aboriginal and who were the last of their tribe. And because of their tribal laws, once they reached puberty, they were forbidden to speak to one another. But it also happened that because of separation and and, and the policy of the government at the time, they grew up separately, they were reunited later in life, and they were the only ones to have this tribal language, but they couldn't communicate it to one another, which is kind of tragically awful and, and ironic in a, in a lot of ways. But they did have a parrot, a, a bird, and apparently this bird would say a few words in this language. So that was kind of the germ, and that's, that's the basis for the bird, Narcissus, in the poem. And I imagined the, the speaker of the poem as, a, as someone who has this bird and, and is desperately trying to excavate this language and, and the sort of history contained within that language and the way of looking at the world that is endemic to that language but is lost, even though he knows it's a futile exercise because you can record sounds but you can't record meaning unless there's a context for those sounds. So that's kind of where the poem took off. And it, when that happened, it joined forces with a, a poem that I'd been trying to write for some time and I'd had the phrase, Zeus for the Dead, for a long time, well, a couple of years before that, from a, an earlier poem in which I had this phrase, Zeus for the Living and Zeus for the Dead. And that poem, you know, it's, it was unsuccessful and I, I never really finished it in a proper form, but those phrases stayed with me. And I always wanted to write a poem called that and then it all just fused although I ended up working on the poem for a couple of years. And you imagine the histories of the brother and sister their lives before they one of the most beautiful images that sticks in my head from the collection is they're like locked gardens these two people sort of side by side tending each other but mm-hmm. locked and self-enclosed and you imagine the history particularly of the woman and what happened to her mm-hmm. and how she was treated as an Aboriginal woman. Yeah, and, and it was interesting trying to imagine that from the, from the perspective of the speaker of the poem who, who has the bird because one of the, uh, prob- not problems, but anxieties imagining that is, you know, do you have a right to imagine this and, and do you have a right to put forward a, a provisional or imagined history of 
you, you, you're very sensitive to not wanting to speak for anyone that you don't have a right to speak for. And I think um, that was one of the anxieties being channeled into, in, into the poem. And what, there's, what, what the speaker does, it, it, it's very much a, a self-conscious imagining. He doesn't know, he, has, he doesn't have details, but in some ways he's, he's really wanting to have these details. And the bird becomes the kind of screen on which he can play out this imagined history. But the history imagined is very much the experience of a lot of Aboriginal people who were taken from their communities and whose family units were broken up and and were taken to these missions and these government facilities in which they were forbidden to speak their own languages and were corporally punished if they spoke their own languages. It's a, a an awful but very real sort of demonstration of how you can actually pair a culture back and back and back. So I wanted to convey some of what had gone on without in any way trying to appropriate it at all and so it's an imagined history within imagined history really the other theme of the poem or site of the poem is the wreck of the miranda a transport ship Mm -hmm. where the the speaker regularly dives tell me how you because i mean you could have i suppose made even quite a lengthy poem just out of the the parrot and the the history of this couple but you you weave in this Mm -hmm. other element of history tell me about how that sort of came to be part of the fabric? Um, I think it came to, I'm, I'm quite preoccupied with the sea, but not so much in a kind of, you know, I'm not a scientist or anything like that, but with the sort of what it culturally means. I've always been, ever since I was a little girl, fascinated by, I guess, um, the old transport stories and naval stories to do with Australia's founding and the sort of strange culture, that floating culture that that grew up there. And I grew up in a coastal city, so water was very day-to-day for me. And I think it it does surface in, you know, for want of a better word, my inner life. It, it does crop up in images in in my poetry a lot. And I, I never planned for this, this shipwreck to be part of it. It was, it was as I was writing, and as I was writing um, this particular poem it, it I think I think if I remember rightly it was it came quite suddenly when I was imagining what he was saying t- to the bird and I suddenly had this image of a shipwreck and and then I went back and 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 as I worked gradually this man became a kind of diver and uh, one of those very serious amateur divers that um, you get in Australia but the more the more I worked with it the more evocative an image it came to me because you have a a shipwreck or the idea of something sunken and something lost and it became an image of where you can take refuge a, a kind of but not in any sort of comforting way if you think of shipwrecks under the sea there's so many things cluster there and they tell so much they conceal so much and so it became this sort of symbol in some ways or this point of intersection for I guess anxieties about empire in the poem and that's and and the speaker you know eventually imagines well what if you know if every ship had sunk you know you'd you'd have an underwater and it's a kind of way of imagining a way uh, imperial past in a lot of ways but there's an anxiety to that because your you know you, your history is bound up in that and then materially your you are a, a result of that you, you're almost wishing yourself away and i think the the fantasy that the speaker has about it this underwater utopia that would 
simultaneously nullify what's happened but also keep something of it is is where the, the shipwreck comes in in a lot of ways. Maybe I can ask you to read an extract from Zoos for the Dead. Sure. This is a section in which the, the man is sort of telling stories to the bird. There are lessons for Narcissus. I tell him that sea caves are often green and jellyfish are blue and they move to the roofs of the caverns like souls in a cathedral, every single one of them just nosing to go. They sting. We say to the learners, leave off the strings of those bad balloons, those light live wires, those water lianas, that flotsam, that death with a little light in. They'll play above you like actors. They'll hang like saints. You'll think the sun is a white coin there for you to hide from. You'll think that it's your own white eye. It can come, this drunkenness. So we keep to it, the wreck. It has its roof and walls. It has its comforts. Let's keep to it, I say to the bird. Let's keep our bargain. But what I want from him is a word for a word. I tell him, the captain tries, but the ship smells its future. On his bottle there is a picture of a ship. Its wood is green. It looks to the sea, and the sea looks back. The ship is only temporary. In the sky, gulls widen, clouds walk off, and the renovated wartime airplanes spend so long in their worn circles that the afternoon sounds like an old man's dream. I say to the bird, let's remember how it happened. He says nothing at all when I spread a blanket on the dunes, open his cage and read from our guide, informational notes on the wreck of the Miranda, transport ship, bound for the south of Australia, lost with all hands on February 9, 1805, in conditions of bad weather, experienced divers only. He was all replica. I was his cure. Day after day we read together. One day I began to embellish the contents. The water was thick with currents of birds moving like fish. The storm had struck their cages open. Pigeons and squabs lost feathers and grew gills. The parents of the dead were soon comforted to see their children hanging round the prows of their fishing boats. Nets got caught in their knotty hair. All the free settlers were given ten square miles of seaweed each and all the convicts were emancipated. One day I went further. Driven by example, soon every ship in the empire sank. Certain edicts gave rise to protocols in the commonwealth of the drowned. All trading was exact, eyes for eyes and teeth for teeth. The empire sank with the ships. The walls of coastal cities walked seaward. Ants built nests in banks, and one diarist famously noted, undiscovered lands are undiscovered, and where we have been we are no longer. I say to Narcissus, look, we could have had a confederacy of seagulls. But he's quiet, looking for lice. He's seen a lot. He's a realist. The, the collection is called The Striped World, and it's got colonnades in it. It's got bars in zoos. It's got stripes and tigers. It's got eyelashes. And I wondered if you could sort of unpick a little bit mm-hmm. your interest in, in stripes. It was it was a, an, a preoccupation that I really didn't know I had until I had a pile of poems that I'd written, and and it, it struck me as well. And, and now I'm quite self conscious about it. And I think it brings together a, a few things for me. I have one poem in there about a tiger in a zoo cage, and his stripes and the bars of the cage mirror each other to the extent that they sort of melt into one another, and he's sort of bare and free. 
And I think there's a lot to do with with, with stripes and particularly with lashes of, of, of eyes and that, that concentrates for me something of this whole idea of containment and the containment of of perception and the, and the, and of subjectivity and how where you are and, and the ways in which you're contained create what you see. And, and by that, I mean both geographical and historical placement, but also just the, the experience of being in a, in a body with certain sensory modes, you know. And so it's world creating in a way. So I, I'm very preoccupied with per- perception and, and the stripes become a, a way of looking at the, limits of perception and but not necessarily in a negative way but I guess as the structure of of perception in a lot of ways but I think that's just one one element of it but I think certainly with the cages that comes across. Tell me a bit about you growing up and the kind of influences and impressions you're absorbing that sort of have later fed into your poetry. I grew up in Sydney my father is Australian and my mother was British and she'd emigrated to Australia. And in terms of poetry, it was really hard. I came to it very, quite young. I guess I came across it at school the way you do, but I started writing poems for myself when I was about eight or nine and continued, I mean, on and off really ever since then, uh, but not in any serious way until I was at, I was at university. But when I was young, I, I loved very much, when you're a child in Australia you and, and you like poetry, what, what you come across and what you're given are, you know, bush ballads, things like uh, Banjo Patterson or Henry Law. I'm not sure how well known these things are outside of Australia. But they're very metrical and very narrative-based. And they exerted an enormous fascination for me, not so much in terms of what they were about, but it was almost just an auditory fascination and I would, you know, say these things over and over again just for the sound and the kind of somatic response I, I got from from sound. And I think that was the beginning of my fascination with language. I had similar responses to all, all sorts of things. When I was at school, I loved some of the little prayers you'd have to say, even though not from any content level, just in terms of that kind of slightly incantatory and, and rhythmic quality. You're an Australian poet, but you don't use a lot of Australian-specific terminology. You don't necessarily sort of name a lot, name check, you know, places or events. So your, your Australianness is quite, maybe I could say, attenuated. It's not, it's not overt. And I wondered about how conscious you are when you're writing about the, de- the degree to which your poetry is embedded and rooted, and and how that sort of manifests itself. I, f- I feel very Australian, but not in any self-conscious way that I'm, I, I feel sort of neither anxious about it nor, you know, wanting to affirm it at the same time. It's it's what I am. And I grew up in in a city. And, and to me, somehow in my mind, there's a, almost a sort of continuity between cities. So there are a lot of cities in my poems, but I almost don't want to, to close down into detail too much and I think I almost have some sort of cognitive inability to do that it never really occurs to me I'm not drawn to particulars and I worry sometimes that's that's a weakness like sometimes I read poetry that's so grounded in a particular place or thing but I'm more drawn to the spaces between things almost than the things themselves. Did you reach a point where you decided you were going to take 
poetry really seriously became a sort of vocation and you thought this is not just something I do and alongside studying other things but actually this is something I'm going to craft and and, and treat with great seriousness. I think in some ways, I mean, it was always the most important thing to me, not simply because I enjoy poetry, but because it poetry is to me the way I, I perceive. That sounds sort of self-important in some ways, but it is the way I sort of perceive the world, not, not in any sense that I'm always walking around composing poems in my head, but that's what it feels like to me. It feels like a mode of knowing or, or a mode of interpretation of the world. So given that, it, it would be difficult for me to, I think, pour myself into anything else as wholeheartedly as I do with poetry. But I also always did intend to do something else because, you know, you, you, can't, you can't live as a poet. And I, I took academic things quite seriously, you know, and, and, you know, I did postgraduate study thinking, you know, uh, maybe I'll be an academic and that's a good way to combine with poetry. And then I, I got to the end of my postgraduate studies and and I, it was it was becoming just more and more of a force in my life and a few things were happening and I got a few grants and things. So I did decide, well, this is going to be what I try and do as much as possible, partly because I'm not a very good multitasker either. And so I am trying to do it centrally and, and do things, uh, you know, to keep it going. What effect did coming to England have on your poetry? I think it escalated in some ways. I came here and I, I started researching and, and studying and I, I did write a lot more once I'd come over here. But I, I mean, I suspect that I just got to that age. and But it did... I. I think part of the reason why a lot of my poetry isn't so much rooted in any particular place is because the last six years or so I've been quite rootless myself and I'm also interested in in those ideas of, you know, transience or or rootlessness. And it exposed to me exposed me to a lot, not only being in England but also being able to travel quite easily from from England as well and so I think a lot of influences, new influences suddenly were being brought to bear, but it was really fruitful. Tell me about the poem Conversation, because if I'm reading it correctly, that is a, a response to not going back to Australia and mm -hmm. the things that keep you here, or all the things that go through your head mm -hmm. as you think about where you are and what that means. So that poem was written just over a year ago, about a year ago, and I wanted to write a poem well, I started writing this poem and it occurred to me this is what it was, was uh, was wanting to sort of capture a moment of thought and all the sort of different competing impulses and images that sort of cohere in a moment of thinking and of perspective decision-making, I guess. But I wanted to do so in a way that sort of kept some of the coherence of that moment because even though it's so multi-layered, you know, you're, you're aware of thought. And so this particular poem is it's, it's spoken by sort of a version of myself in a particular moment and I had gone from here I'd, I'd had a, a, a sort of a death in my family and I'd gone sort of taken refuge I guess with a, a good friend in America and I hadn't had much contact with America before and it was very much a time of of introspection and evaluation both of you know, where I was at that moment and what had come before. And so I think, yeah, this, that, the result was this, this poem that 
is talking about this this impulse to to keep moving and not go back and not to place yourself anywhere it's probably quite a almost a dread of finality in some ways but a very particular it was a very rooted in a particular experience and it's a as I said, it's a version of myself speaking at, at one particular moment. And that's one of the things I'm interested in is this kind of instantaneous pulling together of elements and, and how thought, that's what, I mean, that's what thought is and that's what decisions are. So it's written in America. So structurally, the the utterance, what the speaker actually says, is very short and bookends the poem. And then in the middle is a very long sequence of thoughts mm-hmm. which are, are going through the, the head of the speaker yeah most of the poem is in is in parentheses so is in a parenthesis so the speaker is having a conversation with someone basically in essence what they say to the person is just oh, oh this and that but for various reasons i put off going back and the poem is showing i guess some of those elements showing what you're concealing from the person you're speaking to as well it's a in a kind of paradoxical way it's a poem about privacy as well even though it's all there on the page maybe i can ask you to read it now conversation all this and that but for various reasons the season and the change in season the season of grief and retrospection the rooftop pulled from the childhood house and the internal doll in its stuck seat that is, the fictive soul and its brute cathedral. And because of memory, maybe, and organs in niches, and the beat to things, and the knowledge that the body is the soul and vice versa, but that false distinctions are sometimes meaningful. And that difference, all difference, is just distance, not a state, not a nation. And because nothing matters, not really, or everything does, I don't mind being an animal at all, because a sentient thing is nothing else. And because toward matter I feel neither love nor hate, but the kind of shuttered Swiss neutrality a watch might feel for time if it had an animal's sentiments, knowing itself a symbol and function, knowing itself a tool. And because I feel the dull culmination of various phenomena informing me and am that culmination, I feel ill in some small way, though not ill really, just idle. And I prefer, you see, to keep an impassive, inviolable pact with things that tick, with solitary, shifted things. And because my life's approximate act is the sister to some other life with different tints i carry a nurse my diffident twin i'm often morose and think of those statues that lean above themselves in water those fountains stone with commemorative light with disfiguring winds and because reflection is an end in itself and because there's an end even to reflection and an end to the eye that heated room i prefer to keep my artifice and my arsenal suspended close like an angled man, like the stationed sun. And because matter ends, or I should say, matter turns to matter, and my small inalienable witness to this is real, I can't pretend to wish to be a rooted thing, full-grown, concerned with practical matters, in a rooted world, and careful of borders, when an ineradicable small portion glints my mind that alma mater, and says, make your work your vicarage. I put off going back. Thank you. There are quite a lot of cathedrals and saints and religious signs in your poetry. How, what was your own religious experience as a, as a youngster? Um, it's interesting because I wasn't really brought up in a religious household. My father was nominally Church of England and my mother was nominally Catholic and neither of them were practicing and I was brought up in a, 
in a uniting church school and in Australia that's sort of the Presbyterians and the Methodists united, but it was very nominally religious. And so I didn't actually have any religion in a didactic sense in my life. I think my mother's faint Catholicism struck my imagination and the sort of few little things that she had because of that. But it's always, it's as an image system, I've been drawn to it. It's interesting, I've been drawn to it as an image system without having any sort of investment in it as a moral system. I'm not a Christian, but I, I, I am incessantly drawn to it. And I think it, there's something about mystical language that I'm drawn to, and I'm drawn to it in all sorts of different traditions, or, you know, Catholicism or, or, or Sufism, but again, not in any, any way to do with those ideas but almost just the, the act, of, act itself. So I'm a, I guess I'm a kind of secular mystic, mm. but in a, in a kind of everyday way. In the poem Waiting, the speaking voice says, I was a surveyor, and describes, I suppose, quite a, I suppose a normal childhood of its time. I mean, are, were you a surveyor? Were you salting away memories when you were, when you were young, which find manifestation in your poetry now? Um, I think so, and not in any deliberate sense. I think I was just always have been a kind of pathological observer. And when I was young, I, even as a child, and I almost remember the first time it happened, I would feel, I would always take part in everything, but I always felt there was part of me that was detached and, and observing the situation. And e- even in situations of great happiness or great sadness, there was always this kind of neutral part. I, I think that is intimately linked to writing, though I couldn't pinpoint exactly how. Tell me uh, more about how that poem in your imagination took shape. Sure. It, it's one of the few poems that I've written for someone, and I, and I don't usually do that. It was basically written as a, as a letter to a, a dear friend of mine who's also a writer, and we've been friends since, I guess, we were in our first year of high school, since so about 11 or 12. And she was going to go to America to take up a writing residency and was having terrible trouble with her visa. They wouldn't give her her visa. And so she was, she's Australian, but she was stuck in England. And I, and I sort of start, I started working on this poem and it was, it's the most confessional poem in that sense. And I don't really write stuff that's incredibly confessional. So it's a very unusual poem for me and, and it is written for, for her. So it was given to her as a kind of gift, but because we'd grown up together, as friends and we had similar similar interests. I mean, we've both ended up as writers. It does draw on my childhood in a way that I don't think any of the other poems do. And it and it became, because she was in England waiting to go to America and she was from Australia, it did become about the difference between, between places in a lot of ways and the kind of a projected imagining of, of what it was going to be like for her. In a lot of ways, and and because we've been writing together, we we since we were children, we've shown each other what we've written, even if we haven't shown anyone else. It is about writing, and you do wonder about the point of writing, even though you, you know the whole time it's it, there is no direct point. It's something you do, and it's a it's an impulse and a process. I guess it's more anxiety about the point of writing in the world. Perhaps I could ask you to read waiting. Waiting. The rain perturbs the panes. Only the wind, which has shuttled through the stained and solid brick of the library tower, has brought some words from your future books through the window's crack to deliver you now with its printed birds. 
Here are words, and here's that sea, waiting. The cold and mackerel cracked Atlantic that shakes from the lip of a mussel shell. It says, why write, there's nothing in it. When we were girls, we had the souls of girls, and now that we're grown, we have the souls of girls. Why say innocence ends when the same blue bird beats in the chest as before, and we breathe the same blue water? I haven't put childish things from me. And when I spoke as a child, there was no difference. So should they write innocence ends, or there's no such thing? And should you write, wind, white cloud, white paper, white swan on water the colour of macadam, thin brown river writing the swan? Is there ever an end to comparison? I miss, for example, the subtropical light through stained glass, a world contained in each hot pane, a red or green or pearl world, poised like a cracked gardenia strewing its level scents. And there was a consequence to things. The light moved, and the man in the window walked down the stairs. And we walked, too, through a hackneyed adolescence of holidays, debates, class and Coca-Cola, the terrible measure of time the pin tides in the hems of our school skirts let down at the end of every summer. You were certain of things, you went to church, and I was a surveyor who noted carefully a growing sense of desolation in the topography of foliage and of wincing traffic, the blasted part of me, the bluest part, with its soft-lashed lid. We kidded round, the wind snagged in us like terrible breath, but it was beautiful too, a desultory god in the suburbs who floated on the backyard pools, trailing a hand in the water and raising it like the back of a cat. We were raised, I was raised, father, mother, father in the garden, mother of Pieta. And then the full light winced to a little wick. Sunsets receded, fanned from the backs of airplanes, and the slow stars replaced themselves one by one, and the southern cross moved to Orion. And you moved, birds, rain, the cracked Atlantic, shifting its hydraulic soul of muted oil, that spreading peacock, rustling and cold, that sees the feathery ink of Columbus. Where's the green of the Pacific? those blank and burdened hills. Boston, Salem, Massachusetts, hamburgers in pilgrim caps, and in restaurants on the Cape, the droll shell of a scooped-out oyster, the elaborate love rituals of Mayflower descendants, the little ship tacking in their blue blood, as small as a ship on a sampler. And where's the end of it? New York Harbour, the Statue of Liberty taking off like an ocean liner, the blue Titanic... Moby Dick, or those flustered gulls the colour of money that launder themselves on the sea drifts crying, America, America. We're waiting, you say. It's clear, the light above the rain, the light below, the window's shaky replica, and the way we hang between two points like strung-out alices or beating birds, so pained, you say, and so illuminated waiting for the words to come, the more real words, like the skin with its hint of a shipwreck that might rise sometime to the top. Thank you. I was talking to Emma Jones about her collection The Striped Wild, which is available now in paperback. You can listen again to the poems on this podcast by typing The Striped Wild into the search box on the Faber website, www.faber.co.uk. 
You can also subscribe free of charge to future Faber podcasts at iTunes. Just type Faber in the search box in the podcast section. And more poetry podcasts will be appearing throughout this anniversary year. Until next time, thank you for listening, and goodbye.